9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf and I am curled up under my bed just like the rest of you. Uh, you know, given what's going on in the world today. But I thought we would talk to some other people who have consented to have microphones placed under their beds where they're curled up. And that includes Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. Uh, and Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> Hello, uh, my friends. Do they have a bed for you to curl up under there? Or <laughs> is it just the desk? You curl under the desk. Uh, you know, again, I feel like those of us who've been trained for the nuclear apocalypse are way out ahead of everybody else on this. Totally correct. Uh, and we have Sharon Weinberger, uh, who runs the DC Bureau of Yahoo News. How are you, Sharon? I'm good, thank you. And I'm, I'm at an office. Well, that's very bold of you. Wash your hands, don't touch your face. And we have uh, Ed Luce, who is probably touching his face as we speak because he likes to live dangerously. I'm, I'm scratching my chin in a thoughtful way. Yeah, no, that's very dangerous. But let me ask you a question. I'll start with you, Ed. Um, according to the president of the United States, he feared um, that journalists were going to deliberately infect him with coronavirus. This is a story that's just been on the web. And I just want to know, is were, were you planning to do that as a journalist? Planning on, on shaking his hand. I, I'm not sure quite how you would deliberately infect somebody with the coronavirus unless you, you were suffering from it yourself. Or you, can you sort of get the pathogen in a little vial and then sprinkle it over somebody? I guess you could if you're a, um, working in a laboratory or something. But no, it's, it's, it's another sign of the sort of mental health problems with um, with America's president, I'm afraid. Yeah, there seemed to be some signs. Sharon, you weren't planning on infecting the president, were you? I, I'd rather not sacrifice myself if that's all right. It's, it's a good point. It, it's, it's kind of, we're kind of a weird place here, Corey, since the president of the United States, there's like this pandemic and, you know, admittedly, it's not as bad as the Spanish flu in 1918. And it's not as bad as the movie Contagion, which for some reason I watched again <laughs> last night. Which okay, I don't but it was worth I, watching to have Gwyneth Paltrow's head sawed off, right? Right. Well, they're just the top, and then they fold back her forehead and her bangs. <laughs> um, I it, absolutely did not need that visual. Yeah, well, I got that visual last night. But, you know, it was an important reminder not to eat the nuts in a bar and that kind of thing. Um, but, and, 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 but, but yet the, you know, you have coming out of the highest levels of the United States government, notice notably the president as of today, you know, with a, like a hundred thousand people with this around the world, up, they're like, the, the president's like, nah, this is not as bad as the flu. Just wash your hands. Like, is, is this the response that we ought to be getting here? So I have two reactions to it. First, um, 
I, as you know, am the possessor of the tiara of optimism. And I feel like this experience we are having is going to be really good for reestablishing expertise and elite stature. Because I'm shocked at the number of people, including the President of the United States, who are not immunologists, medical doctors, experts in disease control, who are making statements um, that engage their own credibility on the basis of no actual knowledge. And I think it will be discrediting to people like the president uh, and have, have consequences that remind us, oh yeah, this is why um, we want medical doctors and hospital administrators and to be expert at what they do. And that's the difference between a trained nurse's reaction and me or anybody else uh, who isn't trained for it. And that the president is claiming it's no big deal and saying people need to stay on infected cruise ships so they don't increase U.S. numbers. That kind of stuff, I think, uh, will be politically discrediting and should be politically discrediting because it creates public danger. It does. And of course, there's knock-on effects of a variety of different sorts, uh, one of which is, you know, as of the time that we're recording this, and this can change, but the stock market is down 8% today. Uh, that's roughly consistent with all of the stock markets in the world, Ed. Um, and uh, it follows a bad couple of weeks in that in that department. Some of this is triggered by um, a price war between the Saudis and the Russians over oil, to be sure. Um, but we do seem to be, I mean, Mark Zandi, who's a well-known economist, today indicated that the, he expects the U.S. to enter a recession this year. Um, uh, these are the knock-on effects that that are caused by misinformation or accurate information, rumors, and so forth that swirl around an epidemic. So, you know, as, 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 as you know, as I once coined the, the term infodemic to talk about all of that. And it, and it seems like the infodemic is having a very, very high cost, quite apart from the epidemic. What do you say, Ed? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those questions where I would rather... Um you answer it because you, you did coin the term infodemic and you were, uh, and it's a very apt, it's a very good word for the swirl of information. I'd say I would share Corey's thing. I have no, I'm not shy to express my opinion um, or to tweet it or to write it in columns, etc. But yeah, I, I've been quite careful not to write a column as though I were an epidemiologist. I mean, there's clearly, there's clearly some politics around uh, which is very worthy of, of comment around how the president, who does believe he's an epidemiologist, um, how the president has been conducting. Himself. Well, you know, his his uncle went to MIT and is very smart. <laughs> that was. Uh, I, 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 w I would congratulate. You know, it'd be, it's very rare to do this, but I, I would commend, not congratulate, um, Senator Ted Cruz for, for self quarantining, not just because it's nice to see the back of him for two weeks, but also because at least he is implicitly accepting there is such a thing 
as expertise. Um, and there are such things as sensible precautions that should be taken. And so, you know, in I terms agree. of the demonstration effect, I, you know, I think he should be commended for publicly taking um, that step. At any other time, you know, I'd be happy for Ted Cruz to self-quarantine. But uh, on this occasion, I would I would say it's a good thing um, for, for public reasons. Um, the infodemic stuff um, is really interesting in the context of what the British cabinet just did today, which is they've set up a counterintelligence operation um, because they've spotted a lot of fake news about the coronavirus uh, on the internet and in social media that they believe is coming from Russian bots. And so you mentioned, David, the um, the OPEC plus battle um, between the Saudis and the Russians. There's no doubt about it that Putin is using this oil price um, um, lever tool really to try and damage the global economy and to damage the West and to get revenge for, for, for what he sees as um, Western aggression over the, the, the Nord Stream pipeline. Um, but I think there's also no doubt that this is a wonderful infodemic opportunity in an election year for the Russians to exploit. And if the British cabinet's decision to, to set up this unit is, has any sort of basis to it, this is an example that he is already doing so. That's kind of an interesting point, Sharon. Don't you think that, uh, that the, the, the Russians, you know, might be, you know, exploiting this because the it clearly damages their chosen candidate the la, from the last time around. Um, and in fact, you know, this price war between the Russians and the Saudis to, quote, you know, friends of Trump clearly damages the president this time around. Uh, of course, it supports the theory that Putin's goal is disruption and not really to support any faction in the U.S., but what's, what's, what's your reaction to what Ed's talking about? I mean, with all of these, um, you know, allegations, many of them well-founded of Russian bots, I think I would like to, to kind of wait back and see what the evidence is. I mean, without a doubt, <laughs> Russia has and will exploit any issue to sort of to create this political division in the United States. Um, I think Russia is going to and is facing their own coronavirus problem as well. Um, I, I think the question that I'd be interested in is, so if they are exploiting this issue by doing what fall, I mean, what, what can they put out that doesn't sort of end up reverberating back at home for them as well? Um, I'd just be curious to see what, what the evidence is for the, what, what the Russian bots and what they're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, Rosa, there's no doubt that the Russians and the Saudis are are driving down the price of oil in a way that is going to really slam higher price manufacture uh, you know energy companies, the companies that where the energy is more expensive. And that's, you know, one one group that falls in that category is the US uh, frackers. Um it really hits U.S. oil producers to the point that there are some, if the price stays down this low, that may not make it out of this year alive. Uh, it really hits. It really hits the U.S. hard. So, evidence of, of bots aside, Putin really seems to have delivered a, 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 a tough punch to Trump right now. I'm not sure, David. I, I think your paranoia is is maybe pushing you in in the wrong direction or, or 
in only one of the possible directions it should go in. You know, I, I actually worry about a way in which this potentially benefits Trump hugely. Um, I think we've, we've talked before about various fears uh, uh, that emergency powers of some sort becomes the justification for you know, suspending the election because we can't possibly congregate at polling places or, you know, discouraging people from congregating at polling places or some other form of uh, emergency powers being invoked to justify draconian pro-Trump measures um, in the in the run up to the election. And, and I my fear, you know, I, well, as you know, I always have a, a, a long list of possible apocalyptic scenarios that I'm, I'm happy to unfold upon request. Um, but this particular one, you know, I, I think that there is a real possibility that we start seeing, you know, I mean, so far Trump's response has been, you know, virus, what the virus, there is no virus. Well, OK, there is, but it's a Democratic plot or it's the journalists or, you know, if we can only keep them on their cruise ship, everything will be fine. Um, but at some point that he shifts to, oh, my God, there's a terrible crisis, which probably was caused by the Democrats and the journalists. Um, and the only way I can protect our nation from this crisis is to do X, Y or Z horrific things that help him stay in power and help him achieve his political goals uh, in the meantime. Um, and, and this gives him the excuse, this, this you know, a, 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 an actual genuine national emergency um, you know, I, and I'll hearken back, lest you all think I'm I'm too conspiracy minded. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be. You don't need that much advanced planning. But but if you think back to the era immediately after the days, in fact, and months immediately after uh, September 11th, 2001, um, the the move moves by the Bush administration to sort of lock in various forms of executive power that had been. Extremely controversial until then, you know the 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 John U. Dick Cheney School of Executive Power uh, happened very very quickly, and they happened quickly because the intellectual capital had previously been expended to you know put out there the various legal theories, political theories, et cetera, to 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 support that. And so when when something came along that then enabled them to go, aha, you know. Um, this is the moment when we can finally convince people that it is necessary to take these draconian measures. Um, they were very well placed to do so. And I, and I think that the coronavirus, if it continues to accelerate both in terms of public panic and in terms of actual spread of the virus, uh, offers another similar opportunity for those in Trump's inner circle who've been sort of looking for the opportunity that they can grab it. Um, David, so, can I offer one other possible interpretation of the oil price war? Yeah, absolutely. I, you could also defend me. Rosa said I was paranoid <laughs> and then offered a much more paranoid scenario than I did. But, yeah. uh, go ahead. <laughs> the fact that you are paranoid in dementia. no way diminishes <laughs> how extremely paranoid Rosa is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a I don't think we're paranoid enough true. in the right way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Go, go so ahead. I want to suggest the possibility that the uh, Saudi uh, decision to uh, to dramatically expand the amount of oil they are pumping and to start a price war, um, I want to suggest the possibility it has nothing to do with us, and that um, it it may either be in response to trying to 
impose a price on the Russians to agree to a common OPEC position that makes Saudi Arabia's spending plans as a state sustainable. Or uh, it may have to do with Mohammed bin Salman trying to distract attention from the further crackdown, um, consolidation of power, arrest of fellow members of the royal family that's going on currently in Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah, well, that, you know, that is one of the big stories of, of, of the weekend, certainly, um, Ed. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman is really, um, I don't know, he's playing some kind of high stakes game, not, not just with rounding up, you know, these, these people in, in, in the royal family, um, but, but making this gamble, I mean, you know, $30 oil is really bad news for the Saudis and for other producers in that region. Um, and I've recently, you know, I saw some speculation that it's because he wants to make a play to become king um, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's also kind of interesting in the sense that he doesn't seem to do much without consulting with, you know, Jared in advance. So, um, the, you know, you got, yeah, they have their, their own private sort of bilateral infodemic going on on WhatsApp, um, um, uh, by all accounts. So from, from what I understand, from what I've seen reported, um, the King, King Salman, his father, you know, who probably does have um, dementia, um, uh, unlike Joe Biden, um, called Putin um, to ask him um, to comply with suggested production cuts that the Saudis were proposing OPEC plus make. And Putin refused to give his commitment. Um, and, you know, then we have this aggressive um, aggressive um, sort of uh, bidding war downwards of the oil price um, um, from from the Saudi from Saudi Aramco and 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 uh, and, and and others following suit um, I don't I don't I don't pretend to know what Putin's larger geopolitical game is here other than exploiting uh, an opportunity to cause pain to people he doesn't like um, uh, but the and I don't pretend to know either about the palace court intrigue in Saudi Arabia, except to say it is consistent. Um, Mohammed bin Salman's um, detention, brief detention in the last few days um, and uh, interrogation of senior members of his family, including his father's younger brother and his first cousin, um, his father's nephew, um, but both of whom have senior positions in his government, is consistent with MBS arrogating to himself more and more power in more and more of a paranoid way, more disruptively to ever closer circles of his family as time goes on. Um, and um, this, of course, is not good. At a time like this, um, with a global you know, potential pandemic upon us, um, what we need is the American president you know, calling upon America's allies and non-allies non alike, because um, the virus doesn't respect those borders, and getting some kind of international coordination, both of information sharing and also of signaling, and also while we're about it, of fiscal stimuluses. Um, and here we have, you know, supposedly the closest um, friend uh, of, of the president's son-in-law, um, Mohammed bin Salman, 
um, making life a lot more difficult for everybody. Um, and so, you know, how you deal with Putin in those circumstances is a whole other level of problem. Well, it does raise a series of questions. And, and, and maybe I could go around to all of you and start with you, Sharon, because, you know, what we're seeing now, which none of us anticipated two months ago, are some large events that could certainly have geopolitical consequences. You've got Russia and uh, Saudi um, uh, in this price war. That has implications for both of them, but for energy producers everywhere, and also for energy consumers everywhere, with the price of oil being somewhat lower. It's got um, uh, 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 the, the coronavirus, uh, has potentially very significant economic consequences. In Italy, you've got one province, Lombardy, with 16 million people that is now quarantined, separated from the rest of Italy and, and chunks of China that are in that state and more to come, possibly. Uh, you've got very negative implications for travel and tourism business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let me ask each of you, what... What do, what do you think the knock-on effects of these various things are likely to be through the course of this year for geopolitics and for, you know, significant major countries in the world, starting with you, Sharon? Well, I mean, to, to go back for a second to what Rosa talked about in terms of, you know, Trump sort of doing something like holding off elections because coronavirus, there are so many apocalyptic type scenarios we face in the months ahead that doesn't even require that. Imagine a scenario where the the coronavirus takes its course and, you know, we hold the elections, but turnout is extremely low and the legitimacy of that of that election is questioned, not because of Trump, but just because of low turnout. Suppose, you know, both, as people have pointed out, both Trump and Biden um, are in the age group that is quite vulnerable to this. Suppose, for example, Biden got sick in the weeks or months before the election. Um, we're only at can I, can very I just get jump oh, please. Sarah, can I just jump jump in really quick yeah. to add to that? Um, I think one thing that we should all look at tomorrow um, when we have primary contests in a number of major states is whether we see unusual patterns in voter turnout with older voters staying away from the polls. You know, that I, I think we could see this starting right now in all kinds of funny ways. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I think there's so many ways this can play out. But one thing is certain, we're at the very, very beginning stage and it's going to get worse, whether it is some awful, the worst case scenario, or maybe this clears up by the end of flu season, come June or July, we don't know. But the economic effects from uh, loss of production, from tourism, from airlines, we're not even going to start really feeling that for another few months. So th this could play out in a lot of ways, all of them not great. What, what, do, you, what do you think, Rose? Give us some other thoughts on the knock-on effect. No, I, I'm, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, um, obviously, but, but I think that one thing that Sharon said is, is absolutely clear. Um, things will get worse before they get better, you know, that we're only at the beginning and we're, we're, we've seen obviously in, in China and in Italy, um, 
pretty draconian measures being taken to restrict movement and so forth. Um, we're starting to see that happening here and mutterings of that happening here. I, earlier today, you know, for instance, Princeton University announced that it's, it's telling students not to return after spring break. They're going to do all classes remotely. You know, I think that's going to start a you know bandwagon effect of other universities and schools closing down. Um, we already know that lots and lots of major gatherings and conventions have been canceled. I saw a headline just now saying that Israel has announced that it's going to be putting all people who arrive from international destinations uh, at Israeli border points and airports will now be put into quarantine for two weeks. This kind of thing is going to, you know, it, it may very well help slow down the spread of the coronavirus, which obviously is, is useful if that means that the health systems of, of all the various countries have a little bit more time to, to cope with this and aren't overwhelmed all at once if we can just spread out, spread out the impact uh, and maybe buy some time while vaccines are being worked on and so forth. That's a good thing. But in the meantime, it's essentially going to, Obviously, it's not going to entirely shut down the global economy, but it's going to, you know, put put brakes on every single sector, you know, and the the cascade effects of that are going to be just unbelievable. I, I can't again, I'm I'm I defer to those of you who have more expertise here, but but it seems to me that this is the effects of this could very easily rival or exceed the last financial crisis in terms of the just across the board impact on people's lives and every single sector of the global economy, which in turn, you know, just as we, we're still seeing the ripple effects of the last global economic crisis on domestic politics in the U.S. and all over the world, you know, that that crisis so tremendous distrust of global elites, of, of democracy itself as a mechanism for solving problems, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, Corey started out striking an optimistic note, which in some ways I share, um, surprise, um, you know, saying that this may maybe is the thing that then restores people's faith in actually science matters, actually knowing something matters, actually, you know, experts are experts for a reason that they, they know some stuff. And there are times when that really makes a difference. Um, you know, so I would love to believe that the crisis that is just getting started might this time culminate in people kind of going, oh, you know what, actually, reality, reality bites you know, and, and we actually need to care about uh, more than just fake news. This is important as a, as a wake-up call. Um, I'm not entirely sanguine that that will be the case. It, it could have an even more devastating effect on people's effect, uh, people, people's uh, respect and tr- for and trust in expertise and institutions. Well, let me, let me pose a question, a, a, a sort of twist of my question to Corey and a different one to add. Um, uh, Corey, one of the things that strikes me is that events like these, and I'm not just talking about coronavirus, I'm also talking about the oil issues, the economic issues, um, uh, and, and so forth, um, have an effect on the leaders who have to step up and deal with them. Um, for example, Xi Jinping has to be weaker today than he was before he started. Um, uh, you know, what will happen to MBS and Putin and Trump? And, and by the way, overall, I mean, I think one of the things we're seeing here is when you have a global crisis, it matters that you don't actually have global leadership 
you know, that we're in a kind of a leadership vacuum right now. You know, where, where does that take us? And then, Ed, when we get to you, I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of the economic knock-on effects. But, you know, what, to imp- impact on, on leaders and, and leadership issues, Corey. So I agree with the premise of your question, David, that, um, that uh, since the end of World War II, the United States has typically uh, built, staffed, funded, and championed international institutions like the World Health Organization that have expanded the perimeter of our defenses, right? Defense is always easiest when you have depth that you can trade, whether it's physical space or time or information that gives you preparatory time. And I think what we are seeing is the consequences of President Trump's uh, kind of strident America first nationalism, which is if everybody's a nationalist, then you get a screeching halt to globalization. Because why wouldn't India keep all of the generic medications that all of us receive that are made in India? as a stockpile in case this gets worse. What the United States has traditionally done in international crises after World War II is orchestrate the the flow of resources, the attention to the problems, the uh, who knows part of this answer that we can get involved in this. And that is very much not the DNA of the Trump administration. And so I think we are seeing the consequences of that which is people feeling overwhelmed by not knowing what's happening, uh, people in government who don't seem to know what to do and who uh, destroy their credibility by, for example, um, uh, <laughs> was it the head of Health and Human Services or the head of the uh, Centers for Disease Control who was talking about the stock market recovering as President Trump suggested? I mean, that's not helpful to public. Health and human services. It was Alex Azar, right? He was. Yeah. So, A, who cares what he thinks, uh, right? He's the guy we are looking to to tell us whether we can leave our homes and uh, or whether to rush to the nearest hospital. Um, And so I think the fact that the Trump administration hasn't appointed good people, they don't stay in the lane of their expertise and responsibility, and they're not leading an international effort that will calm these troubled waters, is going to exacerbate all sorts of effects of this crisis. Second thing I would say is something I think we are still thinking pretty narrowly about the immediate virology of and health implications. But, you know, not just is the stock market going wild, but um, Michael Strain, the head of economics here at AEI, told me this morning that don't don't look at the stock market. Don't worry about the stock market. Uh, It always overreacts. And we're probably overdue for a correction. Look at the bond market, which has every every duration of treasuries below 1% interest, which means people are starting to panic economically. And I guess the third thing I would 
say, of potential geopolitical effects is countries that are net importers of food. Um, you know, if people start to panic, does that mean that they're not going to allow imports or exports? And for countries that are food dependent or medicine dependent, that's going to be a real danger. And the United States typically has served as a clearinghouse, whether by providing a window for loans during the 2008 financial or currency during the 2008 financial crisis or in any other global crisis. And the Trump administration is not only uninterested in doing that because of the way they have behaved in the last three years, they won't have either public confidence or the confidence of other leaders to play that role. And so that's going to make this an even more wild roller coaster ride. And it was unnecessary. Well, certainly some of it was unnecessary, right? Some of it's not controllable, but 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 some of some of it is 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 unnecessary. We don't have to dwell on it because we've talked about it in the past. But you know, there actually was a team at the White House that was designed to deal with epidemics and pandemics that was established under President Obama uh, and was dismantled under right. President Trump. And cuts to the Centers for Disease Control. Um, yeah, all right. that kind of right. stuff. Cuts, so cuts across the, the board. It's true the virus was unpredictable and out of our ability to affect, but lots of things that were and are in our ability to affect um, are being done incredibly badly. So let's take one other uh, uh perspective on this and then we'll get to one last round for everybody but 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 ed with regard to the economics of it you know the stock market today puts us like roughly and you know who knows where it's going to end up but but roughly like 10 percent above where the stock market was when trump came in three and a half years ago or you know i mean the 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 you know ten percent increase in the stock market over three years you could have done better leaving leaving your money in your mattress um, practically I mean that's just not uh, uh, a real um, gain to speak of you know three percent a year or whatever that is um, and we haven't even hit the point of a recession yet. Um, so what, what, what's your economic outlook and what steps can be taken? The treasury secretary, um, is, is meeting with congressional Republicans tomorrow to talk about steps they can take. Yeah. Um, he is indeed. And we've already got some indication of the steps that people in the white house and also Republicans on the Hill would like to see one of which is uh, a cut to taxes on investment income, which would be worse oh. than useless, worse than useless. Tax cuts um, for the rich uh, is the solution yeah, to our is. problems. Um, I mean, so just broadly speaking, this is not a monetary policy problem. Um, the, the, the president pressured the Fed to um, cut rates by 50 basis points last week out of calendar. And then it, it, it's under pressure again to cut uh, rates by another 50 basis points next week in calendar when it's at uh, the FOMC meeting is scheduled. Um, the response by the stock market to last week's cut was to plunge. What it showed was panic rather than control. 
uh, over the situation. This is not a monetary po policy problem. This is a supply problem. This is a radical uncertainty problem. And this is a demand side problem caused by all the knock-on effects of the first two. Um, so what is needed, and I don't think there'd be an economist of any ideological description who would disagree with this, what is needed is coordinated cross-border uh, fiscal um, stimulus that is targeted at people who need it most. And that includes people um, working in the gig economy, um, you know, who have no guaranteed work and who are going to be uh, the first to be hit by this. And they already are being hit, in fact. It includes people who don't have sick leave, who don't have um, paid, paid leave of any kind, uh, or already contractual um, uh, um, safety nets of any kind. Those are the people who are, are going to get hit and are already being hit and they need to be protected. And it's the most efficient form of fiscal stimulus because they will spend it and that will at least sustain the demand side. Another 50 basis point cut would be worse than useless. It would, it would cause more panic. It would take um, the, the United States closer to the zero or negative interest rates we're seeing in Europe. Um, which is a sign of sort of slightly above depression levels of interest rates. It's not a response that is uh, at all appropriate to this situation. The example we should draw on, although it's very different circumstances, is the G20 summit that was Obama's first summit in April 2009 in London, where there was a coordinated fiscal stimulus um, announced uh, that included China, um, that helped reflate the world economy and stave off a global depression. That is what we need now on the economic front. Of course, we need all kinds of other non-economic cross-border cooperation as well. I, I, I have to say, I will eat my non-existent hat if Trump undertakes any of this. Yeah, well, he's worked so hard to cultivate those international relationships and and the level of expertise that he has at his disposal um, including not just Mnuchin, but economic uh, giants such as, as uh, you know, Peter Navarro and uh, 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 Larry Kudlow. Um, you, know, no, no, you know, it's an absolute certainty the U.S. will not be leading in, in all of this. So as we look where we are um, in, in, in these crises, um, and we see that they are likely to continue. You know, the question becomes, you know, what can be done? Where can leadership um, emerge uh, that can make a difference? Um, Sharon, what, the one aspect of that question I'd like to pose to you has to do with the media. There tends to be a very heavy focus of the media naturally on What's the White House saying? What's CDC saying? What are the traditional leadership organizations saying? You know, it struck me today that in this crisis, because these people being who they are, they're actually part of the problem. And in a, in a way, you kind of want the media to shift away to people who are more credible than the people who are supposed to be credible here. And I don't think that really has happened. I'm just wondering what your thought of as somebody who's assigning stories and coverage well i mean i think the dilemma here there's a lot of legitimate things to blame the media for but if it, how do you if you are concerned 
that the government is not appointing the experts to head this process? How do we not, you know, you know, Pence is in charge of the coronavirus effort. Do you not quote Pence? Do you not speak to the White House? Um, you know, this, <laughs> if the government is not putting these people of expertise in positions of power, is it the media's responsibility to not report on what the government is doing? I think that's, that's a hard position to put the media in. I mean, I think the media has a responsibility to report on the failings and shortcomings of government, but to simply ignore what the government is doing, that we shouldn't be stenographers. Um, I, I think it's very clear on that. But I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around, but I'm not sure I'd blame the media too much on this one. I'm also more general. I'm not very optimistic about what we've, I don't think anyone here necessarily is, of sort of the U.S. government taking a leading role in the international effort. What's so striking for me in the past 48 hours is how far behind we are. Israel is already asking for quarantine, or at least self-quarantine, of all people coming from abroad into the country. I flew back yesterday to, through Newark from, New, from Delhi, and at the airport in Delhi, all of the customs officials were wearing N95 masks. Passengers were being screened uh, for temperature. You come into Newark, nobody asked where I was coming from beyond obviously that I had arrived from India. There were no health checks. There were no questions. Uh, there was no one wearing masks um, in terms of customs officials. It is really striking, not just that we're slow to react, but in some ways we're so far behind um, less developed countries in our response. Well, you know, I'm from New Jersey and what we breathe in New Jersey is more toxic <laughs> than most countries. You know, you That's build up immunities. That could, that, that could explain it, you know. That could explain everything. Um, you know, Rosa, there, there, there are some positive stories in all this. Um, the Taiwanese and the South Koreans seem to be doing a fairly good job getting their arms around it. Uh, they're, you know, they've created test kits, they've deployed them, they've deployed doctors, they've, uh, you know, maybe, maybe one of the points is you know, other other countries are are leading on this, and the lessons we get from this, the positive lessons, will come from someplace else. Yeah, absolutely, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think one of the the, the big questions we've all been grappling with on this podcast over the last couple of years is, uh, you know, in, in an era in which the U.S. is abdicating its its uh, global leadership. Um, who fills the vacuum? And we've certainly seen that all kinds of disruptive and bad actors have been angling to fill the vacuum. Um, but we, this, this is another crisis that may both force or create opportunities for other, other nations to sort of step up and say, hey, here's something we're really good at or here's something we're really good at. You know, and and that's, that's a good thing if that happens, if we are, if we are left with additional models uh, to follow that are credible and that are effective. Um, I think that, you know, that's something that we can all applaud coming out of this. So, so Corey, what do you think of that? Uh, I agree that the United States isn't the only place good ideas come from and that we ought actually to be looking around at who's doing things well. Also, the great saving grace of these United States is so often um, federalism. You know, the state of Washington is making one set of choices. The state of California is making another. Um, it's not an optimal way 
to handle a fast-spreading um, health crisis, but we can at least identify better practices for the future since uh, we're likely to experience increased global transmissibility of all sorts of things because we're such an interconnected group of countries anymore. Um, it takes me back to the fact that the failure of President Trump's narrow America first agenda is that we don't improve, we don't help others improve their own circumstances. And that flies back in our face to be damaging to us because we need others to have good health systems just as they need us to. And so we are um, failing to get the network effects of international cooperation. And I hope that's one lesson that we will take away from this for doing better in the future. I think that's an excellent, um, excellent point. And I, I'm so infected with uh, Corey enthusiasm and optimism that, you know, I, I, I can't help but see a few things that might be positive that could come out of this, a variety of different sorts, ranging from Rose's point about other countries leading, Corey's point about understanding that particularly when it comes to transnational spread of disease and so forth, there's only one community. It's a global community. You need global mechanisms to deal with it. And the weak points in that global community become dangerous to everybody within that community. But you could carry that a step further, you know, and, uh, you know, other countries that have uh, national health care systems um, don't have large numbers of people who are uncovered uh, or who might not actually go to the doctor to report a disease because they, they lack health coverage. Uh, we do. That's a risk. Maybe we'll learn from that risk. Uh, this is not the most serious kind of pandemic we could face. Uh, we don't know how it's going to evolve, but it does remind us of the importance of preparing, and uh, it does stand in contrast to the response that we had to Ebola in 2014. And so, you know, I perhaps there will be some positive lessons that come out of that. Um, I could go one step further, and and this may may be hard for people uh, to hear right now, but. You know, Ed was talking about bond markets. Uh, Corey was talking about bond markets also. Um, right now, the market seems to be willing to pay the U.S. Treasury to borrow money. Um, so this is a really good moment if the United States wants to, say, fix its infrastructure. You know, this It's infrastructure week! It's infrastructure. It should be infrastructure week, right? I mean, this is a moment where the United States absolutely could, take, could get you know a huge amount of money and invest it in the society, and the market will pay for it. It won't have a cost. This is such a missed opportunity for fixing problems that need fixing, it and does. it should be a bipartisan effort. And there you. And I would it. add, I would add the yeah. uh, sort of emphasis health infrastructure at this point. Absolutely, health infrastructure. Uh, it speaks to the importance of global institutions, of the institutions in a, in, a, in a federal government that allow you to deal with these transnational issues, of the, the, the kind of national health infrastructure we need because of national security reasons, not just social reasons, uh, for economic reasons, not just social reasons. And, of course, it speaks to these other opportunities that exist. So 
stock market's in terrible place. People are going to be, you know, self-quarantining. It's a tough time, but there's a lot of positive lessons we could derive from this. And after all, that's one of the goals of leadership. Leadership is about seeing opportunities in moments of crisis. So there you have it. That's the take from the gang here at Deep State Radio. Thank you to Corey. Thank you to Ed. Thank you to Sharon. Thank you to Rosa. Thank you to everybody for listening. Go to thedsrnetwork.com to hear about uh, some of the great things that we've got coming up. Join us again later in, in, in the week. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye.